Did Jim Morrison provide inspiration for the Dazed and Confused character? Is that true? Getting ready for that role, the first night, I went up for a, uh, a dress rehearsal, and the director comes up and goes, this is great. Look like Wooderson, this is great. And he goes, listen, man, I know you're not supposed to work tonight, but we got a scene at the top notch. It's Friday night. I think Wooderson might be there, you know, trolling for chicks or what have you, you know what I mean? And he goes, I go, yeah, he would be there. And I said, give me 30 minutes. Let me take a walk. And he goes, okay. So I took a walk. Come back. And he goes, want to shoot it? And I went, okay. <laughs> so boom, we go up to the set. I get in the car, and I'm like, I'm nervous. First scene ever on film, and right before we're about to... Shoot, I've got friends in the car. I'm going. I've been listening to this live, more live Doors album, and there's this in, in between two of the songs. Morrison goes, "All right, all right, all right, all right." You ever heard that recording? Of course. Right, the four. All right, all right, all right, all right. So right before we're about to go, I'm like, "What is Wooderson? What, what what is Wooderson about? What's he about?" And I go, "Man, he's about four things. He's about, you know, his car." He's about getting high. He's about rock and roll and picking up chicks. And I go, I'm in my car. I'm high as a kite. I'm listening to rock and roll. Action. And there's the chick. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> That's amazing. Three out of four. Today. I just want to hop in here. This is a one of two parts. This first part, me and Tarn are going to talk about the beginnings of the Boston Arena, some of the history on it. We're going to talk about the first Boston show, and we're also going to talk a little bit about his Doors history and, and how he got into the band. And Tarn Stefanos is such a knowledgeable person about the Doors, and he's a historian in general. In the second part, we'll talk about a little bit about his, his channel dedicated to Titanic. He's been a Titanic historian and a Bostonian historian in general. Super knowledgeable, super awesome guy. Definitely check his stuff out. Uh, Boston Titanic, I believe, is his YouTube channel, and you can find a lot of his older stuff in the Doors Collector's magazines when he used to write articles for uh, Kerry Humphrey's magazine there. And we also discussed the origins of, uh, as you heard in this intro, we I think it might, we might have pushed that to the second part. We discussed the origins of Matthew McConaughey's infamous uh, catchphrase and dazed and confused. We might we talk about that in part two. But without further ado, here is part one of The Doors Live at the Boston Arena on April 10th, 1970, The Early Show. Hello and welcome to Opening the Doors, a podcast dedicated to the Doors. I'm your host, Bradley Netherton. And joining me today, uh, somebody who I've actually was put into contact with through reading a lot of his articles from Doors Collectors magazines from years gone by, and somebody who is still a, a big part of the community, Tarn Stefanos, and he is here today to talk about the Boston Arena shows. But before that, uh, Tarn, let's get into your history with the Doors. Do you remember the first time you heard the Doors? I can tell you exactly when. I was in junior high school back in 1984, back in my junior high days, and I was I was listening to some of my brother's records. I was kind of getting in, seeing what type of music was there. Uh, at that time, I listened mainly to contemporary music, which was 80s new wave, but I wanted to explore rock and roll. And he had the Doors' weird scenes inside the gold mine. 
Oh yeah. And, uh, it was in, it was the cassette and I turned it on and was right in the middle of the end. And I, I had never heard music like that before. And I was hooked. I was absolutely hooked. So I, I, I listened to, it was a double, double tape. So I listened to it repeatedly and repeatedly. And there was just something about the music that, that it transcended just music. It, 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 it appealed to me on, on almost a spiritual level, I'd have to say. Yeah. And but particularly the end, just just it, it was this this symphony of, of of sound that just took me to another place, and my interest in the music has has never disappeared. There, ever so often, I take a break from the Doors, but I always came back. And and Weird Scenes is still my favorite favorite album because that's what got me hooked. Yeah, and and I'm similar. I don't know what it is about the Doors' long songs, and I've told the the story on the podcast before. I won't go into it here. But the first song I remember listening to was when the music's over. That was the one, and that's still my favorite track to this day, man. Uh, something about those long songs that hook you and get you in, turned onto the doors. Well, you know, it's interesting that the, the epic long songs were were a bit of a signature thing for the Doors. The the debut album ended with the end and and uh, Strange Days with when the music's over. Waiting for the Sun was supposed to have Celebration of the Lizard, which instrumentally i don't think it really it really gelled but that was the intention to have that as, as the finale and there was a soft parade which i love that tune although i don't think it ages quite as well as the end or when the music's over it was odd uh morrison hotel didn't have a long piece but uh for la woman i always thought as la woman the, the title track is being a long piece as well it's it it's like each album the doors would have have an opus like a like a a, a symphony for that particular album and and the long song is, is something that's particularly special um one thing i really liked about about the soft parade i'm not sure the term you would use but it's a kind of a song that has like different interwoven vignettes that would kind of veer from one section to another other bands did something similar like queen with bohemian rhapsody and mccartney with band on the run and yeah albert halsey uh, but with the Doors, Celebration of the Lizard, I think, was the one that just, it didn't gel at all. I wish, though, they they had, as they did with Not to Touch the Earth, making that an independent song. I wish they'd done the same with the other components. The Hill Dwellers, for example, could have been turned into a song in of itself. Yeah, and we I just got through talking about 1965 on uh, one of my previous podcasts. And and Go Insane being on the demo, just it sort of not being languishing. You know, they had that from the beginning and never really used it. I think that ended up on the Celebration Lizard as well, though, didn't it? It's called Go Insane or A, a Little Game. Yeah. I wish they had done something with that to, to make it a, a, an independent song of its own. I, I think on, on the demo, I could sort of understand why it didn't really get much traction. It, it, it sounded almost like a like a, a spoof or a parody song rather than an actual serious piece. But as as part of um, the live experience, I think it, it worked quite well. Um, in 1968, during a, a performance in Stockholm, the Doors did fragments of Celebration of Blizzard, and, and they did a little game. And that particular version, I thought, was was quite powerful. Yeah, I also think it didn't a version end up on the Hollywood Bowl album, the original Hollywood Bowl album, where they didn't have all the tracks. That was on there, too. I don't feel like it was as strong as a Stockholm. I agree with you on that. And, you know, we've talked about long songs, opus songs. One thing about this Boston, these two Boston shows that we're going to talk about, the 1970 Boston shows, is every song pretty much they play out as almost a long song. I think we get an eight-minute version of Break On Through, you know, with Jim sort of ad-libbing, and we'll get into that. 
but you actually have a unique connection to Boston, or a, I guess not a unique, but a long-standing connection to Boston that we can get into. Well, I am from Massachusetts. So I was born in Salem and went to university in Boston, went to Northeastern University, and I lived in Boston for years and years. And right now I live just two miles from, from downtown Boston. And I know the exact locations where the Doors performed during their, their Boston visits, uh, the Boston Arena. Which, used, which now is Matthews Arena, part of, of my college, Northeastern University. The Back Bay Theater, uh, a 1968 performance, uh, that, that building is no longer there. It's been replaced with a really ugly apartment complex. The Crosstown Bus in, in Brighton, which is part of Boston, in 1967, that building is still there. So every so often when I go to these different parts of the city, I, I try to think of those performances and just try to imagine what it, it would have been like to have seen the doors at that time. And it, it what's particularly interesting to me is between 1967, 68, and 70, their sound evolved and changed dramatically. And the doors came back after Jim died. They played on the Boston Common, I believe, in 1972, without Jim, of course. And of course, they went in a completely different direction with other voices. So so the memory of, of, of the doors of Jim is still in the air. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to start. So here we are. April 1970, the Roadhouse Blues tour. and But you, like you said, there's a distinction here. Uh, they played the Back Bay Theater, as you mentioned, in 68. And when they come back in 70, if you listen, there's a bootleg of the of the Back Bay Theater show, which is uh, you know a decent quality bootleg, I would say. The performance was stunning. It was, and yeah. figure with, with an audience tape that's not of the best quality, the spectacular performance still comes through. And mm-hmm. just imagine being there. The, the sheer power of that performance must have just knocked people out. You know, talking about the Boston, we'll get into the Boston Arena, but can you tell us a little bit about the Back Bay Theater, the setup, compared to the Boston Arena that may have changed the dynamic of the performance? Well, the the theater, I think it was an old vaudeville theater, actually, that closed down shortly after the Doors' performance and was torn. it was torn down within a year or two. It was a much smaller venue than the Boston Arena, and I think that, certainly helped the doors because i i believe their me and I, they've said this themselves their their music was more conducive to a small audience a more intimate setting and much of their magic i think is lost in an arena where often acoustics are atrocious as is the case with the boston arena but in the back bay theater it was it was in a way it was analogous to the aquarius theater um people were up close in seeing jim in early 1968, during his leather-clad period, he was at, he was at at his prime, and he was energized. And contrast that with 1970, with the post Miami Jim Morrison performance was completely different. Um, many people sing the praises of, of the Boston Arena show. I, I don't think his performance was on the same level as it was in 68 and 67. I think he he let himself go physically and and vocally. And the recordings are a testament to this fact. Like during a version of, of "Light My Fire" at, at uh, the Boston Arena, it's, it sounds like Jim put the microphone in his mouth at one point. Yeah. For his start. Whereas at the Back Bay Theater, I, I mean, there was one point he broke in, into poetry. My name is the Holy Shay. I come to town to ta- the, today to tell my story to the judge. Very powerful poetry. My name is the Holy Shay. Come to town this day to tell my story to the judge. Judge, 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 judge. The man is 
be the Mandarino. Tell us why it is you stray so near. Why you run away and come back slow. In the middle of the sun, in the middle of the day, when even an idiot goes indoors. He was focused, and you could tell he was completely focused on the words and on the songs. In Boston, I mean, some people say he was just having fun. He was having a good time. To my mind, I, I wish he had been more centered, more focused on on his artistry. And I, I just just think it was more Boston Arena was more of a kind of a kickback, casual performance. So it's an evolution or a, a development, if you will. But they're both quite different. And I really wish we had a recording of, of the Crosstown bus because I've run into people who saw them there in 67 at, in Brighton, Mass., which is Brighton's part of Boston. And that's a very small venue. And you could like literally stand up right in front of the band by all accounts. It, it, was, it was a phenomenal set. Yeah. Well, let's get into the venue, I guess, of the Boston Arena because it is uh, located at St. Batolph Street. It, it's a, it's a, it used to be Boston's primary concert venue. Then it was replaced by the Boston Garden. Yeah, the arena uh, has had some very high-profile rock bands there. The Doors, Bob Dylan performed there, and many sports uh, events took place. Uh, the acoustics are awful, though. Yeah, because I I went there for an event and you couldn't hear anything except the echo. So that's certainly a that's a problem with many of the older arenas, and and that I think is why Doors. Music did not hold up well in large arenas because you're you're in some place like the whiskey where people are up front and can hear the band perform. The magic is in full power, but if it's all if the acoustics are atrocious and you can't even hear what Jim's saying and you just hear like the the, the drone of, of Ray's keyboards, uh, the mystique disappears completely. Yeah, um, yeah, because after all, this is like an old multi-purpose arena. I mean, it was, I think it's the world's oldest, uh, it's the world's oldest multi-purpose athletic building that's still in use. And it was even old when it was the doors performed there. It's the oldest arena, definitely in use in ice hockey. Uh, it opened in 1910 on the Northeast end of, uh, the Northeastern university campus, which I don't think it was officially part of the campus till later on, but it was originally home to the national hockey leagues, Boston Bruins, the only team of the NHL's original six, whose actual home arena still exists for ice hockey. And it is, it is the close to the MBTA station. The groundbreaking actually took place in 1909. Uh, it was supposed to have a capacity of 5,000 and it was supposed to be used for ice skating, curling, and it had its own power plant, which powered the two 100-ton ice machines and all the arena's lighting, which is something we'll get into later at the end of the second show. But it was so, you know, it ends up opening in 1910. It's partially destroyed, I think, in a fire in 1918 and rebuilt and reopens in 1921. The NHL's first U.S.-based franchise, the Boston Bruins, played the first ever NHL regular season game at the arena in 1924. And they left the arena in 1928 to go to the new indoor facility at the Boston Gardens 
which, you know, we talked about. Also very bad acoustics in there, you know, not really great acoustics in the Boston Gardens. The Boston Garden was, eventually that was torn down and replaced. It was torn down in the late 1990s. In fact, when I had my graduation ceremony from Northeastern University, it was at the garden and they had already started demolition because we, we saw like demolition guys in the corner and so forth. And they replaced it with a new building, which had various bank names for a few years, like the Fleet Center and the Bank North building. I think. And, and now it's just the garden. And it's it's much better um, acoustic-wise. I, yeah. I saw Paul McCartney there about four or five times, I think. And the acoustics are, are, are fine. They're, whereas at the garden, you'd often uh, find yourself sitting behind a, a pillar. It's better than it, than it was, I have to say. But for those who were at the... Uh, Boston Arena and seeing the doors, the acoustics were not the best. So, so yeah. the the audience tape we have that came out before the official release probably is better sound quality than what many of the people there uh, experienced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, something else I found interesting was the Boston Celtics actually held their first ever game in 1946 there and played there until 1955, which I find interesting because in 1950, Red Arbach is hired on to be the Celtics coach and he signs uh, Chuck Cooper and the Boston Celtics become the first NBA franchise to draft a black player. And you, it's funny that the season after they leave the Boston arena, they go on to win their first of 11 NBA championships, including a run of eight consecutive, which is still the longest championship streak in us professional sports history. Uh, I guess the, the Boston arena, it was a little bit of bad luck for the doors and for the Celtics a little bit. Speaking of um, the Boston Celtics and the Boston arena, in the early 1990s, uh, there was a man named Reggie Lewis who had been signed to the Celtics. He also went to Northeastern, and he tragically died just as he joined the Celtics. And they held his his uh, funeral at the Boston Arena, or his his public wake rather at the, at the Boston Arena. Oh wow! And what year did you say that was again? It was about 1993. It's the early 1990s. I can't remember the exact year, but the turnout was massive for that. Oh man, yeah, I hated. Yeah, I remember hearing that story. Cause I was just going to mention as a point of trivia, the location of the Back Bay Theater is not even, or former site of the Back Bay Theater is not even two blocks away from the. Oh really? Oh wow! So that's interesting, and and I'm sure one day we'll talk about the Back Bay Theater, and I'll, I'll have to re-listen to that. Uh, bootleg again but that uh, that's a great you know it was a great show and the boston arena actually hosted every president from theodore roosevelt in 1912 to john f kennedy in 1946 and other dignitaries also held events at the arena including charles Lindbergh and amelia Earhart. and i think at the time that the doors were there the big sports i know they had used to they would have a lot of boxing matches you know jack sharkey jack dempsey gene tunney all, uh, joe lewis all those and muhammad ali trained there uh, when it's called the Santos Gym. And they also had, like I said, professional wrestling events as well. In the 1950s, it also hosted the rodeo led by Roy Rogers and, and Dale Evans, who Roy Rogers, another bit of psychedelia fact, is he was going to close Woodstock. I think they wanted to get him, uh, Michael Lang wanted to get him to close Woodstock, but that I don't think Roy Rogers was interested in that. I would never guess that. Yeah, because it was, I think his, his thought was that Roy Rogers was a part of all these guys' childhood, and it would be like a a good ending. Of course they ended with Hendrix, which uh, truthfully I'd probably rather had Hendrix close out Woodstock than Roy Rogers. Probably would have been a better fit at the rock and roll revival concert in Toronto. in yeah. September I mean, that had, that, oddly enough, that's one of my favorite door shows that had everyone from Chuck Berry to little Richard to Gene Vincent. And of course the doors and John Lennon. 
as well. Yeah, that that was that is a great show. Well, t- I mean, that's another good show too to talk about. Uh, but it did, and you mentioned this earlier. They, there were a lot of famous people who put on concerts at the Boston Arena during its lifetime. On one evening, May third, nineteen fifty-eight, the Big Beat Rock and Roll show, roll show hosted by Alan Freed was cut short due to riots inside the arena. And a no, the, the the this is from Wikipedia. The wording, the non-fatal serious stabbing that happened outside. So I'm guessing the guy didn't die, but it's still pretty serious. But it headlining the bill were Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, and Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Alan Freed was arrested after police repeatedly had the house lights turned on to stop teens jiving in the aisles. And Freed issued the now infamous line. I guess the police don't want you to have fun. Interesting. So, uh, and here we are 12 years later, and this is said, I'll set the stage a little bit for this show. The Doors fifth studio album, Morrison hotel had been released in February and Boston is set to be the sixth city played during the roadhouse blues tour. I think technically the seven seventh city, but Honolulu got bumped till afterwards, but I think that's all probably minutia. Boston university plays its last home hockey game at the arena on March 10th. So that's a one month, you know, breakdown. I'm, and so we have a local ice hockey arena near me and they host a lot of rock concerts. And I went and saw one, a concert recently or not recently, it's been years ago, but they had the, you go in there and it's still ice cold because they kept the ice. And so it's just so ice cold and they just lay a layer down on top of the, on top of the ice to keep it there, but like have like padding on top for it and put chairs and stuff. I'm wondering how they set up concerts at the, Boston Arena, if they would have kept the ice there and melted it down, that was the end of the hockey season. So I don't know if they'd have kept it. That's a good question. That's something I don't know. I I might find the answers in Vince Trainer's new book. He yeah. goes into detail on on setting up the concerts uh, at different venues. I just got his book. I, I've read bits and pieces of it. I don't know if you have it yourself. I haven't got it yet. I I need to get it. Travis has been talking talking to me about getting a copy. I need to grab a copy. But that's definitely on my list of things to get. So Jim, who had been arrested in Phoenix along with Tom Baker during a drunken flight leaving L.A. in November of 69, is tried and convicted for assaulting a stewardess named Sherry Ann Mason, and he could face a maximum fine of $300,000 and a three-month prison sentence. But a motion is filed on April 1st for a new trial after Mason's testimony indicates that she had a mistaken identity of who had assaulted her on the flight. On April 7th, Jim's poetry books released The Lord and the New Creatures, and that's then we we come to the the Boston shows, April 10th, 1970. So is there anything, I, 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 you had a really interesting story. Can you tell the story about the first time you heard the show and where you were when you heard the show? Oh, yes. Well, as an undergrad, I went to Northeastern University. New semester arrived and I went into a building to fill out the, the forums to sign up for my classes and, and I Walkman on and um, I had a newly acquired bootleg tape of the doors at Boston Arena. And the building I was in was called Matthews Arena. And I didn't find out till sometime afterwards that the Matthews Arena used to be the Boston Arena. So I was listening to the Doors having performed at that exact venue. And of course, when I found out, I was still at, I was still a student at Northeastern. So I, I made the point of going back to Matthews Arena to sit in the balcony and listen to the tape and, and just imagine watching the Doors at that venue. So that, that was pretty surreal. Yeah. And I bet it was pretty surreal because there's some shows like I would love, even though I've heard sort of subpar things about it, like San Diego, I would love to have San Diego. It was, I would love to hear it because they did a version of Louie Louie, but I've heard by all accounts, it was a terrible show. It could tell as well. It, 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 you know, the oddest thing with the doors is for some reason, there are so few recordings 
in crisp sound quality uh, from their time performing live. Contrast that to other bands of the period, like, like the Grateful Dead, for example. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dead shows in perfect, perfect sound quality. Whereas with, with Doris fans have, have, have recordings, it's, it's like listening to a concert in the other room. It, yeah. it, it's frustrating, but it's almost comical in its predictability. And, and some, uh, I've heard some Doris fanatics talk about shows, how, oh, it's in really great sound quality. And it's actually not. It's just, yes. but by the standards of what we have, it's as good as it gets. Yeah, because the San Diego show seems interesting. And and this is another thing that I know that I talked to Joshua White. He did the the light shows at the Fillmore East. And that was my that was actually my first interview. And he talked about how the Doors one of the first groups to perform there. And by all accounts, those shows may have been the best the Doors ever had. By what I've heard people talk about, I think somebody wrote a Rolling Stones article about it, that the Fillmore East shows were amazing. They did apparently a three, four hour show to like three o'clock in the morning or something like that. And I, I mean, it just seems like just a phenomenal show. So of course, they weren't recorded. And, you know, I, The Grateful Dead, I could see being recorded a lot because they actually did end up getting their own engineer who recorded with them, who traveled around later on. But I think a more apt probably comparison would be Jimi Hendrix. There are so many Jimi Hendrix live shows, and he is the exact same time period. He pretty much was a performing yes. the exact same time period from 67 to 70 as The Doors. So you would think that he would have a comparable amount compared to the doors or they would have a comparable amount compared to him. But people came and saw Hendrix and they recorded Hendrix. And even though the doors have a reputation of, Hey, this is a live man. You never know what Jim's going to do. You don't have a lot of recordings of Jim life. And he was bigger than Hendrix in the States, you know? So it's, it's, it's an enigma. It's, it's, I shake my head. I have no idea why it's the case. You would, you would think that, um, there would be more shows. And, and there's always the stories of, 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 of Doors performances that were taped, but the tape disappeared over the years. Like I, years ago, I met someone who said he he saw the Doors at, at um, Crosstown Bus and and taped it, and that was in the 1990s. Who knows where that tape is if it even existed at all? So frustrating to no end. But you know, I'm just glad what we have, what's out, and. With with all these shows that were recorded for absolutely live, as as happy I, happy as I am with the quality, like the Felt Forum shows, for example, are perfect sound quality. But the the problem is by that point, I personally think that Jim's voice was completely fried, um, and particularly during the final set at the Felt Forum. Now, I would much have rather had a a um, recording of. The Roundhouse performance, the entire Roundhouse um, or Stockholm shows in, in perfect sound quality. Um, this is an area, an area of some disagreement among some Doors fans who, who think that the Doors were actually at their best in 1970, vocally and instrumentally. I think instrumentally they got better and better, but it seemed to me that in the early days, vocally, uh, Jim was aspiring for a vocal style that was kind of a hybrid of, of Sinatra and Elvis. But by 1970, he was going more for a raspy Howlin' Wolf kind of singing. And you you compare L.A. Woman vocals to Strange Days vocals, completely, completely different. And that manifested itself in live performances as well. Uh, yeah, that is a that is a great insight. Because now that you say that, I mean, I guess it's something I always thought, but hadn't really... 
put two and two together on because especially like the Kobo Arena show, you when John Sebastian comes on like he did, even the Felt Forum shows, whenever the whenever the doors play over, they always hey the, what we the run over or whatever we're going to play over is going to be what we want to play, and it's always the blues, you know. But I really wish instead of going in the direction of blues, a direction every band is going towards. I wish the doors had gone towards jazz because Ray and John were jazz fanatics. They both loved jazz. Jim was a poet. Poetry and jazz go together perfectly. You know, there, there are some alternate versions of, of Queen of the Highway and Spy that have a, like a jazzy arrangement. And it would have been great if, if the Doors could have recorded a jazz album. Sure, they could go into blues as well, but 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 have an album that, that explored jazz and have kind of a early 1960s vibe of the of a beat poet with a jazz ensemble behind him. He could be um a cappella talking poetry and then instrumentally the band could come with, with, with a jazz sound to support his poetry. Uh, I've mentioned that to some other um, Taurus fans. They weren't really into jazz at all, but I'm, but I'm thinking this John Densmore's strength of jazz and, and Ray loved jazz. And I always thought jazz was a style that the Doors never, never really looked into seriously, which I wish they could have. Blues, they were good at blues, but I think the best blues band of that time was probably Can Heat. Can Heat was a band. Yeah. And they had been co-built with Can Heat. And, and I, I've never seen anything um, in print where Jim talked about his opinion of Can Heat, but I have, I have a feeling he was a huge fan of their music and their style. I appreciate the bluesiness of L.A. Woman. I, I, wish, I wish we could have had a jazz album as well. So. I have a friend, uh, Steve Kamen. He actually used to live in Miami. I think he was 15. He got in, into the club The Hump in 1970. He was there. And he said somebody was jumping on tables while Canned Heat was performing and went on stage and sort of jammed with Canned Heat and sung. And he found out later that it was Jim Morrison who was up there with Canned Heat at the hump. That's fantastic. Alan Wilson, blind uh, Alan Wilson. Uh, he grew up in the town next to me, Arlington, Massachusetts. Really? The high school he attended is, is fairly close. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but Canned Heat is, yeah, I think, I, spot on analysis. And so that sort of leads us, I think, in transition because we talked about that Morrison hotel had been released February of 1970 and they incorporate, you know, I, I think a majority of the concerts on this tour start with roadhouse blues. Uh, the, the exceptions, I know the second show on this one actually starts to break on through, which we'll talk about when we get there. Pittsburgh starts out with backdoor man. I think mostly because of Robbie, it seems like Robbie sometimes will just say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to play a guitar lick and y'all follow along. But I, I think much of the, the, set lists throughout 1970 were to some extent dictated by what Paul Roth, Rothschild told them in anticipation of recording a live album. Could be wrong about that, but I think that's one reason why many of the shows throughout 1970 were somewhat repetitive when it came to their set lists. Yeah. They claimed they never had, they, they never knew beforehand what they would perform, but I, I do believe they actually had some idea of, of general set list shows, uh, songs they would perform at shows and other songs they would abandon outright. For example, um, some tracks they would drop by 1970, Unknown Soldier, Unhappy Girl. They would never touch Strange Days after 1966 for some reason. 
maybe they did some early six and seven shows. But the thing that just always, always irked me is they would eat up so much time performing very, very long songs. And you touched them on, upon some of their lengthy pieces. But there are some songs that they performed with such great length that ate up so much time that could be filled with other tracks, like 10 minute plus versions of Light My Fire. The, 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 Mystery Train, Black Train song medley, which has several different names. I don't even know what to call it. It just went on and on. Take, for example, at, at the 1970 Seattle performance, that version of, of the Mystery Train medley, it, it just went on and on. And Jim Jim did not want to sing. He, he just, there were parts of that where his vocal cues came up and he just remained silent. Of course, contrasted that to Vancouver, which was phenomenal. Just think, Take out the, the whole mystery train medley and, and plug in songs like My Eyes Have Seen You, Land Ho, Strange Days, or Waiting for the Sun. One of the greatest songs they never did live. Never did I, live. I'll never understand that. I saw Robbie Krieger live a number of times, and it, it works as a live song, very much so. It's a very powerful tune. And yet, for some reason, the Doors chose not to do it live. And Jim admitted, like when it came to to picking singles, they always got it wrong. So maybe sometimes they also got it wrong when it came to choosing which songs to pl- to play. So that's what I wish they'd done. Well, let's let's break that down a little bit more. A little bit more. Let's go into the early show. I'm going to go song by song. We're going to name what album it was off of. And the first the first early show they do one, two, three, four, five, six seven songs that are their original songs. They do Roadhouse Blues off of Morrison Hotel, Ship of Fools Morrison Hotel, Alabama Song and Backdoor Man off of the debut, Five to One off Morrison Hotel, When the Music's Over off Strange Days, and then we get Light My Fire off the debut album. So nothing off Soft Parade. They do a version, and this is the other odd thing. You Make Me Real is the single is that's out. They don't do it in concert, except for the second show. And it's a very old track too. I, I thought that had initially been recorded in '69 or '70, but when Doors of the London Fog came out, holy cow, "You Make Me Real" was performed. Although it sounded more like a surf song back then, it seemed to be a track they they, they dusted off and, and rearranged a little bit and became part of their repertoire. That's not one of my favorites. I mean, what, what do you think of that particular track? "You Make, you make Me Real." I don't think it should have been the single and. I mean, it's got a good beat to it, but I don't think it's one that they, they necessarily transferred live well. And it's probably, I mean, it wouldn't make the top 20 of my favorite door songs, definitely. So what would we keep? We would, I would keep Roadhouse Blues. Uh, what do you think about the Alabama song, Backdoor Man, 5 to 1 medley? Keep it? Well, I understand why they do it because it's, it's a similar key. They, but lyrically, it doesn't flow. I, I'm not really a fan of medleys. I, I like to hear songs performed in their entirety. But I'm so used to Backdoor Man being performed at every show. It's sort of the anchor for any Doors concert for them to do Backdoor Man. I probably would have dropped Alabama's song and do Backdoor Man in its entirety, maybe five to one. But I would also throw in Waiting for the Sun. That's definitely something they should have done. And bring back Strange Days. Strange Days is a great song and it works live. But for some reason, they chose not to. I would completely drop the whole the whole mystery train jam because I just I don't think it works at all. I think it eats up much too much time, and they could use that time to add other other songs. Now I do understand if the whole point of recording these shows 
was for the live album, again, why there would be repetition performing the same songs. And I personally think they intended to include that whole Mystery Train jam on Absolute Live, but it never came to pass. I'm not sure it would have worked either. Sometimes they throw in gems. Uh, A big surprise about the Boston Arena shows was they did the Spy live. And as far as I can recall, that's the only only known time they did that concert. That's the only time. It would have been nice if they could could have done Queen of the Highway as well. Uh, but the spy was was particularly nice. And and there were some good poetic moments. Jim did did the um, graveyard poem. Oh, it was very, very odd. Uh, that particular version of Light My Fire, instrumentally, the entire band just stopped yeah. uh, during Light My Fire. And then Jim just without any musical accompaniment went into that poem. And then afterwards they went back instrumentally. That that's something and that goes back to what I mentioned about jazz. They could that would be very effective if, if they had that as a jazz arrangement around Jim speaking his poetry. You know, by the time American Prayer came out, to some extent that was almost bits of it were a bit like disco, because that was part of that era in the late seventies. But the spoken word poetry works. The the music what is it Jim said? The the music is kind of like you know, kind of lifts it up in a way. Because he he felt he was very self conscious about reading his poetry. He was dry. Um, but the, the music gave him confidence. Yeah, and and I completely agree. And I think that the Waiting for the Sun really should have been a single. I don't see why it was on the Morrison Hotel album. You don't do it live. You have You Make Me Real as a single. And I know under you know Roadhouse Roadhouse Blues is your B side to that. But man, Waiting for the Sun is such a strong track. I think they could have opened with that too. It'd have been a great opener. Oh, I completely agree. And. The story behind Waiting for the Sun is full of mystery. I mean, Ray said that they had that song during the time of the third album, but it wasn't it hadn't fully coalesced. I don't know if that's true. I mean, is, is that a song that was recorded after Waiting for the Sun? Or did they have it in demo form? Are there versions still that that still linger um, unreleased or were unreleased at one time, but the tapes disappeared? A lot of questions. It, it just seems um, bizarre that they they didn't perform it live. I mean, I, I did they did they not have faith that that song would be successful? It it works live because when I saw Robbie waiting for the sun was the best track they performed. It it brought the house down literally, and um, it's one of my favorites. Just imagine, imagine. Um, Let's say at the Felt Forum, if they had opened with Waiting for the Sun, that that would have been spectacular. Yeah, and I I feel like they, and maybe this is just sort of, hey, just talk, I guess, afterwards. But I always thought that Waiting for the Sun was like a song that, it it seemed to me like it was one they could try to do in in the studio and they couldn't quite get it down, maybe. uh, That they didn't feel like it was was good, which the Doors were known to do that from time to time, to, to think something could work in the studio and push it back an album or something moonlight drive. I think that notoriously happened too, but you know, I don't know if there's ever been like a, Hey, this was like the real story. What happened? And we just decided to push it off. But why name your album waiting for the sun? If you're not going to have waiting for the sun on it and put it on a different album later, that was what always sort of threw me off. I believe initially the, the third album was to be called the celebration of the lizard. And they ultimately of course abandoned that track. And then 
exactly named the wedding of the sun, but it is odd why they would pick that name if that song had if that song existed, albeit unreleased. You know, it, it's there are many mysteries about the music of the Doors that continue to fascinate me and others, and hope, hopefully the answers will come out about, about waiting for the sun. I would love to hear a demo of that song, hear it in early form. Which I don't think that's, you know, from all indications, I remember reading this years ago, and I think I've brought it up on some of the forums maybe, is that I think all of the studio stuff that wasn't like L.A. Woman uh, got thrown out for whatever reason. And it's something I think you can tell too. If you ever listen to like some of the alternate versions, a lot of times, like some of the alternate versions, especially on that 40th anniversary box set, the doors of perception box set, they, they will have different instrumental tracks, but they'll use the same gym vocal track for whatever reason. I know that I don't know if they threw whenever Electra moved from storage to one place or another, I think the tapes got thrown out from all the non essential, like uh, mixes for the actual albums. I've heard speculation of that very thing, which is unfortunate. It's definitely unfortunate. Who knows? Who knows what we're missing? I would love to hear their early songs in their earliest form. I, I envy Beatles fans because oh, they have recorded everything of songs in demo form and evolving, uh, like Strong Fields, for example. Um, you get to hear how that song started off as a, a very simple song with very minimal instrumentation, and it, it took a, a totally different direction. And if only we had something similar for The Doors. We have, to some extent, we have that with Moonlight Drive. We have the 1965 demo, and we have three studio versions of Moonlight Drive. Each one is subtly, subtly different, and each one is, is, I think, excellent in its own right. One of the best sites for Doors uh, information, mildequator.com. Uh, it, it is the best by far. Yeah. By far. Nothing close to it. And even if you look at something like doorshistory.com, I was looking at that. I don't think that's changed in like 15 years. <laughs> like doorshistory.com. Wild Equator is just, it's stunning. I mean, the, the, I mean, Logan is phenomenal. He's a, he is a, he is a true historian. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that they have on there is there's a lot of good testimonies from people who went to the shows. And I'm going to read this from the mildequator.com about Ken Rose, who had to, who went there. He said that he was 15 years old at the time and a huge fan. He, it was a Friday evening in early spring, and he can still recall that still being light out as he drove to the city. They made their way into the ticket sales takers and found their seats. The doors came out as scheduled a little after 7, unlike the second show, which didn't start to almost midnight. G- apparently, Jim stepped out to hoist a few at a local bar between sets and had a little trouble making it back on time for the second set. With a lot still low, the band members made their way to the stage and took up their positions and instruments. Morrison wasted no time quickly grabbing the microphone and letting out a blood-curdling scream at the band as the band jumped right into the open of Roadhouse Blues. Everyone immediately stood up on their chairs from the very first notes. Crowd enthusiasm went into overdrive and stayed that way until the conclusion of the show. I thought people might settle down after the first number, but I was wrong. I wondered how long the old rickety wooden chairs would support the weight and half expected to start seeing those around me tumbling to the ground as chairs began collapsing. The smell of burning joints filled the hall, covering up the industrial odor that predominated beforehand. All we had there, though, was a red soft pack of Paul Mall non-filter cigarettes. He goes on to talk a little bit about about the set list. Jimbo wore black jeans and a blue sweater on stage 
All the other doors seemed to be wearing their street clothes as well. No fancy outfits for these guys. They were here to play rock and roll, not put on a fashion show. Between songs, a girl near the stage yelled something at Morrison. What sounded to me like, show us your blah, blah. You know, I couldn't quite make out what she was saying to Jim, but Jim didn't miss a beat, responded in the slow croon. What would you do with it? What would you do with it? Someone near the front of the stage managed to grab hold of the sleeve of Morrison's sweater, and as Jim retreated to the edge of the, from the edge of the stage, it stretched like silly putty, maybe ten feet or more. The concert continued with a medley including Mystery Train. Uh, at the, they played Light My Fire as the big hit. At the conclusion of the band, bid us all good night and took their leave of the stage, knowing they still had another show to do that night. And then he basically talks about going outside and seeing long lines of people coming in. And I mean, from the first show. That's interesting, though, is that it seems like the, and something you can hear is the enthusiasm of the crowd. Compare this to like the Aquarius, the Aquarius shows. I mean, it's very quiet during those shows, the, the July 69 shows. Performance, though, was spectacular, I think, in the Aquarius. But they, they do seem, the, the audience does indeed seem somewhat subdued in contrast to the Boston Arena. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's an East versus West Coast thing. I've got, so here are the notes that I took just listening through uh, the early show. So Roadhouse, Roadhouse moaned uh, into one of the most, probably the greatest uh, haunting scream there to start Roadhouse Blues. I absolutely love that. And that being like, that was the first ever live Doors anything I ever heard was that. So the the Boston Arena, that was your your introduction to it. My first show. Yeah. Actually, I'll tell a little bit of a story. They, it was at Walmart. I was in middle school and I was with my grandma and she would get me stuff, you know, from time to time. It had an explicit label on it. And I sort of was in the, in the aisle. I picked it off so she wouldn't see that. Sorry, grandma, if you're listening to this now, but I, she got it for me. And, uh, yeah, I, I took the label off and I, and I remember playing that in the old CD player I had, man. And I, I loved every second. That was the first show I ever heard. Eventually we were on a trip to, you know, I'm, I'm from the South from Alabama. We have a lot of, Civil War history around here, and we were on a field trip to a Civil War reenactment, and we left early in the morning. I had an old Zune player, and so I took time, burned all the music down to my Zune player, and I remember listening to it on the bus, the late show, and 5 to 1 comes on, and it has the squeal, and everybody in the bus is looking, they're they're looking around like, what's happening? Like, they they had, because apparently you could hear that from, you know, (laughs) ringing out, so I started it over so people would hear it again. Even like adults in the front are looking back, like what what is going on? Like didn't know where it was coming from, but that was like my my favorite, probably still is my favorite door show. I guess just for nostalgia purposes. I know I I totally understand the power of hearing your first live Doors recording. For me, it was when the Hollywood Bowl came out in in eighties. It was just it was just magic to to particularly the, the video to actually see the doors on stage because prior to that i had just been listening to the doors on tape but to, to hear it and to see it it was it cut through the through the decades and i was watching this on television on the my old vhs player but i was there in the audience and it was it was very very powerful and I mean, objectively looking at it, 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 Hollywood Bowl wasn't their best show, but it it hit me when I heard it. And, yeah. And version the end, I, I still think was excellent. 
Oh, I think so too. Yeah. I, I just have to smile thinking about it because because I, I know how powerful it is when you hear the Doors perform live for the first time. It's like wow. It it just knocks you out, and it, it's something you never forget because because their music it, it's beyond music. There's something about the music of the Doors that grips a person and doesn't let go. And you know, I got hooked in the '80s, and I'm I'm still addicted to this music. And, yeah. and I think you're going to carry your love of the music for, for the rest of your days. So. You're, you're in for a ride, I think. I think the doors here, instrumentally, are so tight. Of course, Jim sort of he he gives a little bit of Miami with the "You Gotta Love Me, Darling" stuff in the first show, and even you know a little bit in the second show. There was one miscue, I believe, in five to one that I noted. But another great scream by Jim. Jim has like moments, especially throughout these shows, like where you know the in uh, Alabama song, he misses the f- whole first verse in the first song. He he's not singing in the mic. He's, don't hear anything i'm like come on man like not even for like a couple words but like for like a whole verse i was like man i'm like man come on jim but the band is so tight and he has this moments these flutters of genius the scream during uh music when the music's over and the pause where he he's sort of sitting there and they say and he says what do you want and then you hear like the the girls screaming you you and he says uh, and I think she, the girl responds, you know, and he says, what would you do with it, babe? You know, like we talked about earlier, he says, you tell me what you do with it. And she lets out the scream and he says, I think I'll pass after that. Even the crowd gave a little reaction there. I think I'll pass. And Jim goes from that, like moment of like, you know, joking is now let's get real quiet. This is real serious. And he finishes when the music's over. Shh. All right, let's get real quiet now. This is real serious. Shh. And, and I don't know, Jim flipping that switch from like serious to joking to back to serious is, is, uh, and he was very particular too about things sometimes. It's, it's just funny too. Listen to an example of when he went from serious to dropping his guard a bit, a bit of levity was during the end of the Hollywood Bowl, very serious performance, and he he goes into his little little uh, discussion about a moth and and or even belching. Um, I thought it was funny. Yeah, but he he holds the audience captive captive. And then he does the, has these moments of levity, but it's almost like you don't want to get out of the moment so much because you know he's going to go back into the serious aspect. It's like during the roundhouse, during the Light My Fire, he had a couple of interactions with the audience, which seemed to break the spell momentarily, but people were immediately pulled back in. It's maybe he was simply cognizant of the power that he had over his audience. It's an extraordinary gift that he had as an artist. He could read the audiences very well, and he could tell when people were drawn in, and he could tell when people were not. There were times, particularly the outdoor festivals, like Eugene in in, uh, in 69 and the 69 Seattle Pop Festival, they wouldn't have them. They they just weren't into it, and he turned on them with a a fury. But other times, though, when when he had them, like Back Bay Theater, Roundhouse, he had them. They were in a spell. Uh, Fillmore East, 
well. But every yeah. so often, he, he, he would break break character in a way because he, as a performer, he was. I always thought that Jim was basically on stage and he was creating this, this amazing drama. But every now and again, he would break the fourth wall. Yeah, and then like like before he, they do after that, they he says uh, he says here it comes. This is the one you've all been waiting for, and then they play Rock Me. Okay. Okay, here it comes. This is the one you've been waiting for. Yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. what do you do with that, Jim? But you know they do rock me, and there's an interesting dialogue. And I tried to isolate it as much as I can, do noise reduction on the track, and put on some headphones and listen. And this is the best that I could gather after they do rock me. Ray says, "Somebody ready to play the strings?" Or he says something like that. I don't. But it's are you? Is somebody ready to play something? Uh, maybe play something we know, he says. Maybe play something else. John and Ray sort of continue discussing, and Ray has a mic right there, so you really can't, you can hear him, but you can't really hear what all John's saying. And John says, let's go way down. And then Jim steps back, and they start having a disagreement. And Ray says, maybe we can play it one day. And Jim says something about the first verse, like, I don't I don't really, I couldn't really get what all he was saying, because he's off mic saying this. He says something about the first verse, and they eventually decide to play the Mystery Train medley. So I'm not really sure what the discussion there was, but apparently they were trying to play something else. And maybe Ray was Ray, especially in the late show we'll get into is, is very, and he was always sort of the band leader. I mean, even the show that the, in Amsterdam, he was the one who took the lead and, and sung vocals on everything. And after the door, after Jim Morrison died, he was the one who took the lead, you know? Oh, very much so. So I think that was sort of a, a, a big part of their identity. And, and this is something I've always wondered. And I was going to ask you this, maybe you might know. So they do this medley, and if you see the credits on the album, you know, they give the correct credits to Mystery Train and, and Away yeah. in India. But Crossroads is always credited to Robert Johnson, but there, it is definitely not the lyrics of the Robert Johnson version. That's a good point. You're, you're quite right about that. I do know when he would throw in lyrics from, from Fever, which usually would be tacked in Line My Fire. I think that's because in 69, he saw Peggy Lee in concert. And I think that inspired him to do that. So is is there any similarity to the Johnson song? So the so the Johnson song is I went down to the crossroad, fell down fell down on my knees, asked the Lord above, have mercy now, save poor Bob if you please. Uh, standing at the crossroads, tried to flag a ride, but didn't nobody seem to know me. Everybody just passed by. Standing at the crossroads, baby, rising sun going down. I believe to my soul now, poor Bob is sinking down. So lyrically, maybe instrumentally. Instrumentally, is there any similarity? Um, you know, maybe a little bit. Uh, let's see. But, but of course, Robert Johnson's is more. I mean, it's a sl- really slow blues. I went to the crossroads, fell down on my knees. Here's the Boston. It's got a similar verse structure. It's a it's a AAB AAB. Hmm. There is a similarity. It's very subtle. It's not a straight out cover of, of any part of the song. Like the same James Farmer. Yeah. Bit of a stretch, but but 
if they acknowledge it as such, then it, it must be the case. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I, I just always found that uh, a, a unique aspect of it, that it was credited towards him. But really, all the verses are like same original Jim written verses. I mean, talking about the H-bomb and stuff, that would have been, you know, things that... <laughs> Robert Johnson wouldn't have had it, you know, even contact with. But yeah, so moving moving on to that, we have the a good conversation. A funny thing, this weird part of Jim, like I don't know if he's joking here. How many of you are over eighteen? He says. How many of you are over twenty one? He says. Hey, you can sign up backstage, and he seems like super serious about this. And you see the girls yelling. I think they yelled something like, "What do we get?" And he said, "Anything you want." But he seemed like super serious to begin with about the signing up backstage for something. How many of you are over? Well, you can sign up backstage. Uh, they got a little booth back there. You can sign up. Anything you want. Anything you want. And we end the first night with wake up. I guess they they sort of did it prelude to wake up and wake up, but it's sort of the same, I guess, lyrically as the as the original wake up. But we have this this little roll and tumble in the middle. Now we want everybody to go home. Everybody go home and grab your girlfriend and roll and tumble all night long, all night long, all night long, all night long, all night long. Oh, roll and tumble. Jim lets us know his beliefs on overpopulation, everything. Hey, listen. Listen here. Listen here. Don't worry about all that rumor about overpopulation, man. You guys just go out there and overpopulate all you want, man. There's plenty of room. Plenty of room, man. And a better... Man, so... If you listen to the late show, Light My Fire, I think the, I love the interwoven bits, but the whole second half after the graveyard poem is, is just not a fan of that, of Jim's vocals there. Well, that particular um, version of Light My Fire, despite, despite the poetry, it's just, it's not his best vocal. And this, this is an issue I have with some of the 1970 shows. But though the other doors instrumentally are getting better and better, it's just Jim. There were some shows he was just off. I mean, you contrast it with anything from the 68 European tour, like the Danish TV special, for example, was perfection. He was, it might as well have been in the studio. His vocal was perfect. Instrumentally, the band was spot on. But you contrast that with, um, in the felt forum, the felt forum was a great show, but but vocally, I think that, that Jim was not at his best. This this is heresy to some Doors fans who love the felt forum. By the by, the final set, of course, his voice was completely fried. Although, granted, they did a, a, a very interesting medley, which ended with "My Eyes Have Seen You." I, I think again, he was going for for that more raspy, bluesy voice. 
which maybe put a lot of strain on his voice. But then at that point in his life, I think he started smoking cigarettes nonstop. So I think that hurt his singing as well. Thank you again to Tarn Stefanos. You can find him on YouTube by searching for Boston Titanic. You can also find him on Facebook, and you can find his old articles in the Doors Collectors magazine in all the back issues. You can find this podcast on Twitter, at The Doors Pod, and on Facebook by searching Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage. also want to thank DoorsHistory.com and the Mild Equator for information used throughout the show. Music for the podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here in one week for part two of the Boston Arena Shows with Tarn Stefanos. But until then, keep the doors open and the music loud.